enslave and ransom any of these captives. Young Italian women would fetch more than the men in the flesh markets of Tunis and Algiers. The crews dragged the townspeople aboard various ships, tossing them like ballast willy-nilly below deck into the holds for the 160-mile voyage. The prisoners wore only what they had slipped into at bedtime on that seemingly unimportant September night, which would turn out to be their last night of freedom for half a decade. This was life on a Mediterranean island, circa 1798, in the age of Napoleon and Nelson, and the waning days of the Barbary Corsairs. The Bay of Tunis, the country's ruler, had commissioned these seven ships and a thousand men to attack San Pietro. To the bay they were his privateers, fighting a legitimate war against Sardinia, which had refused to pay tribute to him for the right to navigate the Mediterranean. To the rest of the world these seven ships were Barbary pirates, part of a centuries-old extortion scheme. Fall weather on the Mediterranean can run skittish, and storm winds kicked up. The San Pietro prisoners spent the next four days seesawing in the windowless, foul-smelling dark, appalled at their fate, vomiting, weeping, with no sanitation and almost no food or water. That is, all except six young women, six jeunes filles, ran a later report in French from a Dutch consul, Antoine Nissen, in Tunis. Six young girls, alas, that they were still so, were selected by the Reyes, captains, to serve their filthy desires, and the most disgusting forms of volupté were their pastimes during the voyage. The ships nearing Tunis passed the site of ancient Carthage, and the captains fired off celebratory cannon shots to signal their victory. The city of Tunis lies six miles inland from the harbor, connected by a stagnant reddish-colored lake. The pirates rushed the prisoners aboard small barges, boatmen pushing poles, then strained to follow a winding route indicated by pillars rising a foot or two above the surface. On these pillars, standing silent, sad, wings furled, seeming like those birds sculpted on tombs, are cormorants, wrote French novelist Alexandre Dumas, who fifty years later took this same route. Dumas said the birds of prey would suddenly swoop down on some fish swimming near the surface, then calmly returned to reassume their crypt-like pose. It's doubtful that many of the Italian captives noticed the wildlife. The city soon announced itself by smell as much as by sight. The prisoners later learned that fecal ditches ran along the northern and eastern walls to receive the human waste from 300,000 inhabitants of various races. Moors, Arabs, Turks, Jews, European merchants and diplomats, African and Christian slaves. Runoff from the ditches fed into the stagnant shallow lake, making the fish poisonous to humans, but edible by the likes of cormorants, flamingos, and seagulls. The corsairs, swinging leather straps, herded the filthy exhausted prisoners through the narrow byways of the whitewashed city on the unusually hot day of September 8, 1798. I saw them harassed by blows, by fatigue, covered in dust and dying of thirst dragging themselves along a burning street, barefoot, hatless, wrote the Dutch consul. There was a huge crowd drunk with joy to see so many Christian victims of the bravery of their soldiers. These unfortunate captives staggered forward two hours to the palace, where the Bay of Tunis, Hamuda, in his jeweled turban and diamond-encrusted silk vest, inspected them. For him it was like counting money. Each of the prisoners was now a slave to be sold at his whim. The Bay's Corsairs had captured an astounding 950 people, including 702 women and children. On the northern coast of Africa, circa 1800, blacks and whites could still be sold into slavery. 
Men were usually peddled near naked or in dangly shirts in an outdoor auction. Women could be inspected privately in stalls nearby. Unlike slave auctions in the southern United States, male buyers here openly acknowledged lustful desires for their human purchases. Matrons inspected the women, and virgins were sold at a steep premium, often with a written guarantee. Of all the fears of people living in the 1780s and 1790s, a fear perhaps exceeding death itself was the terror of being made a slave on the Barbary Coast. In sermon after sermon, it was portrayed as hell in life. Twenty-one freeborn Americans had spent eleven years in slavery in Algiers, from 1785 to 1796, bringing their stories home to the nation. Foreign consuls begged the Bay not to break up the San Pietro families, not to sell anyone off to Algerian slave traders. The ruler of Tunis set his opening asking price for the women at 600 Venetian sequins each, about $1,371, at a time when a U.S. sailor earned $144 a year. He would charge half that amount for the men. The bay, to save on the cost of feeding and dressing, then farmed many of the captives out to leading citizens of Tunis, including the representatives of foreign countries, who accepted the slaves on humanitarian grounds. Six years later, Tobias Lear, United States Consul General to Algiers, would accept two female Italian slaves to work as housekeepers in the consulate. He would expense account their $75 a year upkeep. Among the San Pietro prisoners, one young girl stood out. Strikingly beautiful and of aristocratic birth, Ana Maria Porchile was 12 years old, a ripe age on the Barbary coast, a marriageable age. She was the granddaughter of the Count of Sant'Antioco, the admiral of the Navy of Sardinia. Brought up in a strict Catholic household, Anna had led a sheltered life. Private tutors taught music, literature, and dance to this naturally vivacious girl. The Bey, to keep loyalty high among his officers, decided to allow his six Corsair captains to select one female, each as his own personal slave. The admiral of the fleet, Reyes Muhammad Rumeli, chose Anna. Rumeli was quoted as saying he had fixed his desire on her. He intended her as his concubine, unless someone would immediately buy her from him for the record asking price of 16,000 piastres, or almost $5,000, the price of a mansion in Manhattan. Anna's entire family had been captured in the raid, including her mother, Barbara, her father, Antonio, and her two sisters. While the negotiations for the rest of the slaves could drag on over months via shipboard messages to and from Sardinia, Anna's fate must be decided quickly. Rumeli demanded an answer. Anna's father desperately tried to find financing. He naturally turned to fellow Italians who happened to be in Tunis, and he fortunately found a Tuscan merchant, one Felipe Borzone, who would loan him the entire sum. The man paid Reyes Rumeli, and Anna was suddenly free. Almost. She was the human collateral for her father's loan. The Bay would not grant a Tascara, or passport, to her until the loan was repaid. With Anna as hostage for her father's return, Don Antonio Porchile was allowed to travel to Europe to raise the money. But in the chaos of the Napoleonic Wars, he failed. So the Tuscan merchant sold the debt to the aged prime minister, Mustafa Koja, a man known for his wisdom, courtliness, and complete lack of teeth. The months of 1799 slipped by, and these white-skinned slaves joined the 2,000 or so slaves of various ewes laboring in Tunis. Negotiations dragged on. The price for the women dropped in half to 300 Venetian sequins. 
the exasperated Bey, to encourage a speedier payment, sold the lemon to slave traders of Algiers. Nonetheless, the king of Sardinia, harassed by Napoleon, was unable to redeem his countrymen. Italian slave mothers gave birth to dozens of new slaves in Tunis. On October 10, 1800, 87-year-old Mustafa Koja, who held the Porchile debt, died, and all the prime minister's possessions passed to the Bay of Tunis. The very next day, the Bay demanded that the Porchile family pay off the debt immediately, or else the Bay said he would reclaim lovely Anna and add her to his seraglio, or more ominously, he said he might instead auction her off in the slave markets of Istanbul. Since the Bey made little secret of his preference for men over women, his foreign minister, Yusef Sapatapa, a 33-year-old former slave, was his lover. Selling Anna was the likelier scenario. That afternoon, Anna and her mother and her sisters tried desperately to figure out a way to raise the money. Her grandfather, the admiral, had died, and her father, the new count, was at that moment in Sardinia still trying to amass the huge sum with absolutely no success. The pirates had stolen everything. His credit was suspect. European banking was a mess. The mother and her daughters were running out of options and time. They considered the various consulates, such as British, French, Danish, and the Catholic Redemptionist Charities, Jewish moneylenders, European merchants. On that afternoon of October 11, 1800, frantic, they presented themselves at the door of the Consulate of the United States of America, a fledgling nation that trumpeted itself as a bastion of freedom. They sought refuge under the red, white, and blue flag, which then had fifteen stars and fifteen stripes, and was represented in Tunis by one of the most unlikely diplomats ever to be forgotten by history, William Eaton. A former...